The assignment that Titus was given by Paul in chapter 1 and verse 5 is to set in order the churches on the island of Crete. And as we saw in chapter 1, he began at the top by appointing godly leaders who meet the qualifications in verses 6 to 9. And then also he was to silence the ungodly leaders who are described in verses 10 to 16 who had usurped that position. And so order in the church begins with the leadership. But it doesn't end there. Because in chapter 2, Titus is to turn his attention to the congregation. He is to address various groups. Verse 2, older men. Verse 3, older women. Verse 4, young women. Verse 6, young men. Verse 9, bond slaves. The membership is broken down by age, sex, and social status. And Paul is telling Titus what each of these groups ought to look like. What are the qualities that ought to be evident in the lives of those in the church? And he is saying that we need to close the chasm between the lips of God's people and the lives of God's people. Now, how do you do that? How was Titus supposed to set in order the lives of individual Christians? We'll look at verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Now that's a contrasting phrase. The contrast is between the many rebellious men in chapter 1 and verse 10 and you, Titus. They, according to verse 11, must be silenced. You must speak. They, according to verse 11, are teaching things they should not teach. But you, Titus, are to teach the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. Now the word sound is the Greek word from which we get our English word hygienic, which means healthy. What germs are to the physical body, false teaching is to the spiritual body, the church. And so to counteract that, Titus is to speak the truth of God's Word, which will bring spiritual health. Now, a lot of healthy things don't necessarily taste good. When I was a little boy, I didn't like vegetables. They didn't taste good. And my mom would say, you have to eat your vegetables because they're good for you. And so she would often make me sit at the table until I finished my vegetables. And everyone else would leave and I would be sitting there at the table. And so to encourage me, she would stick them in my mouth. (laughs) But I wouldn't swallow them. And sometimes it got to be my bedtime and I was still sitting at the table. And she would put me to bed with a mouthful of vegetables. That's the way some people are with healthy spiritual food. They don't like spiritual string beans or spiritual spinach or spiritual squash. In fact, look back a page to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, and there Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Why is it that some people don't like healthy doctrine? Because it conflicts with their own desires. They have developed a taste for selfishness. And sometimes the truth hurts. And sometimes the truth steps on people's toes. And sometimes it doesn't taste very good. And some people say, I don't want to be changed. I just want to have my itch scratched. I don't want to be rebuked and reproved and exhorted. I just want to have my ears tickled. I don't want healthy doctrine. I just want junk food. And there were plenty of false teachers in Crete who were serving up junk food because they knew that it would sell. And there were plenty of people in Crete who preferred the taste of junk food. But Titus was to serve healthy doctrine. Now, healthy doctrine produces healthy spiritual living. And that's why in verse 1, the emphasis is not only on the healthy doctrine, but the things which are fitting. That is, the things which go hand in hand with healthy doctrine. And what is that? It's healthy spiritual attitudes, healthy spiritual character, and healthy spiritual actions. It's our lifestyle that ought to line up with our message. And that's what Paul is going to talk about in the rest of this passage. He tells Titus to challenge the lives of five categories of people in the church. The first is older men in verse 2. Now, older men are critical in the church because they have something that younger men don't have, and that's a level of experience in life. They have had more lessons. But being older doesn't guarantee that you're wiser unless along with your physical maturity, you are developing spiritual maturity. And Paul points out what that should look like. He gives us six things that ought to characterize older men. First of all, he says in verse 1, they are to be temperate. Now this is a word that primarily means to be moderate in the use of wine. He is to know when to say no. There is nothing worse than a drunk old man. And metaphorically, this word came to mean someone who uses moderation in all things. He is not to be one extreme one day and another extreme the next day. He is not to go from an emotional high to an emotional low. He is to be moderate in all things. His years have taught him what are and what are not true pleasures. And he is not to be given to indulgences. He is to have moderation in all things. Second characteristic in verse 1. He is to be dignified. This word means to be honorable and respectable. The Bible calls for elderly people to receive respect. Paul says you're to act like you deserve it. 
You're to be someone that young people look up to and say, I want to be like him. Now, a lot of men today go through what psychologists call midlife crisis. That's when they get somewhere around the age of 40 and they realize that they're losing their physical prowess and they're losing their attractiveness and they're losing their hair. And so they want to go backwards and they want to recapture their youth and they want to prove their manhood. There's nothing more pitiful than an old man trying to live like he's 20 years old. Paul says older men are to be dignified. They're not to be frivolous and trivial and superficial. They are to be growing old gracefully with dignity and honor. Third characteristic, verse 1, they are to be sensible. That word is also translated prudent or sober-minded. It doesn't describe a person who is gloomy and never laughs. If anybody ought to be smiling... It ought to be a godly, older man. But this word speaks of someone who is serious about what really matters. The older man can clearly discern what things are of the greatest importance and value. I like what Albert Einstein said. He said, once you accept the universe as being something expanding into an infinite nothing, which is something... Wearing stripes with plaid is easy. (laughs) You see, the older man is serious about what really matters. He is serious about eternity. He has his priorities in right order. And then fourthly in verse 1, it says he is sound in faith. There's our word again. He is healthy in faith. The years have taught him to trust God more. The older man doesn't just have the promises of God, he has experienced the faithfulness of God. He has tested God over the years and found Him to be faithful. In Psalm 37, 25, David said, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. I have never seen God let His people down. My experience tells me that God is faithful. And then the fifth characteristic in verse 1. They are to be sound in love. One of the dangers of old age is that people become bitter and cynical and critical. And the very opposite ought to be the case with Christians, they ought to be getting more and more healthy in love. They ought to be be becoming more tolerant and more caring and more giving as they grow older. And then the sixth characteristic of older men at the end of verse 1 is sound in perseverance. Why is that important? Because the older you get, the more trials you're likely to have. Your health begins to fail. You lose loved ones. You lose friends. You experience loneliness and often neglect. Older men are to have the ability to endure those hardships. They should be like tempered steel. Their legs may be shaky, but their character 
is steadfast. John Claypool's family had lived on a farm near Hopkinsville for six generations. And he tells the story of how when he was young, a thunderstorm swept through southern Kentucky and blew over an old pear tree that had been on the farm as long as anyone could remember. His grandfather was grieved to lose the tree on which he had climbed as a little boy and from which he had eaten fruit all his life. A neighbor came by and said, Doc, I'm real sorry to see your pear tree blown down. I'm sorry too, said my grandfather. It was a real part of my past. What are you going to do? The neighbor asked. My grandfather paused for a moment and then he said, I'm going to pick the fruit and burn what's left. That's the wise thing to do when hardships come. Gather whatever fruit we can out of it and move on. But you know, some people never pick the fruit and they never move on. And there's nothing more tragic than a man who has gotten up in years and learned nothing from them. That was the case with Solomon. And that's why I gave this advice on the last page of Ecclesiastes. He said, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. The one who walks with God through the valleys of life doesn't say with Solomon, I have no delight in them. He says with Paul in Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good. Sound in perseverance. Secondly, he moves to older women in verse 3. And they are to be categorized by four things. The first is that they are to be reverent in their behavior. Now that word reverent is only used this one place in the New Testament. It was a word that meant being priest-like. Having the reverence of one who serves in the presence of God. The classic illustration of this word is Anna in Luke chapter 2 and verse 37. It says that she lived as a widow from the age of 21 to the age of 84, and she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. She lived her life in a priest-like reverence. Now some women are reverent when they come to church, and that's why they say, don't do that, you're in church. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about this kind of reverence everywhere. In all your behavior, you are to conduct yourself in a way that shows you know and lets other people know that God is present. Second characteristic, verse 3, not malicious gossips. That's the Greek word diabolos. It means slanderer or false accuser. 34 times in the New Testament, this is the word translated devil because that's what he does. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of our brethren. Older women often have extra time on their hands. They are not to use it gossiping about others because when you do, you are fulfilling Satan's purposes. Someone has said, 
It takes two years to learn to talk and 70 years to learn to control your talk. Third characteristic of older women. Verse 3, nor enslaved to much wine. The word enslaved is a Greek word doulos for the lowest form of slave, one who is held against his will. And so this phrase comes to mean the idea of drunkenness. And with the pains and frustrations and loneliness of old age, many turn to drink as an escape. Christian women are not to do that. And I might add that many older women today who would never touch alcohol are enslaved to prescription drugs. And the same exhortation applies. You are not to be enslaved. And then the fourth characteristic in verse 3, teaching what is good. With her extra time, she is not to gossip. She is not to be enslaved to wine. She is to teach what is good. Having taught her children well, she is now to teach others. And who is she to teach? Verse 4, that they may encourage the young women. Years of Bible study and practical experience enable her to pass on valuable counsel to those starting out in life. And listen, if this doesn't happen, then every generation is doomed to learn the hard way and repeat the mistakes of the past. E.F. Brown, a missionary to India, was asked, what is it that they most need in India? And his answer was grandmothers. Godly, experienced women who could teach the younger women. And though this is given as the responsibility of the older women, if you are a younger woman here today, I think wisdom would say that you need to seek out and cultivate friendships with godly older women. Which brings us to the third area. Young women in verses 4 and 5. And they are to be taught seven things. The first is in verse 4. They are to be taught to love their husbands. Marriage as God intended it to be doesn't come naturally. You don't just get married and live happily ever after. And this may come as news to some of you husbands, but your wife has to be taught to love you. Peter DeVries said, the difficulty with marriage is that we fall in love with a personality, but we must live with a character. How do you love a character? Well, older women are to be teaching younger women how to do that. And you know, the first century marriages were much less romantic than ours today because they were often arranged by the parents. And so two people got married and then they learned how to love each other. And if a lady in that setting could learn to love someone she may not have even wanted, then you can learn to love someone that you chose. Second characteristic of young women in verse 4, they are to love their children. You say, well, surely mothers already love their children. Well, yes, that is a natural instinct, but that love has to be developed and refined and educated. Some mothers like Rebecca in Genesis 25, 28, love one child more than another. 
And maybe you've heard a mother say something like this before, I love my child too much to spank them. Well, that love needs to be educated because Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And who are the best teachers on how to love your children? It's those who have already raised their children in a godly way. It's the older women. And then the third characteristic of young women in verse 5 is sensible. This is the same characteristic ascribed to older men in verse 2. It means they are to be serious about what really matters. They're to have proper priorities. And then fourthly, they are to be pure. This is a word that meant primarily moral, sexual purity. A Christian wife is to be faithful to her husband in mind and heart as well as in action. And then the fifth characteristic, they are to be workers at home. Now, he doesn't say stayers at home. He's not saying women can't work outside the home. He is saying that the home is to be her first sphere of responsibility. When you read about the wife in Proverbs 31, it says that she feeds her family, she clothes her family, and then on top of that, she makes linen garments and sells them, she makes belts for the tradesmen, and from her earnings, she buys a field and she plants a vineyard. She was a multifaceted woman. You can do those things. You see, the issue is here is that anything you do outside the home must not interfere with with what you must do inside the home. That is priority number one. You don't sacrifice your kids for your career. And remember, this exhortation is given to young women with young children. That's when they need you most. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons we're losing our kids today is because nobody's home. Sixth characteristic, verse 5. She's to be kind. Sometimes young women with children get circuit overload. And they become irritable and sharp. Paul says they are to be kind. That is, gentle, considerate, sympathetic. You are not only to give your family your time, you are to give them your heart. Of the woman in Proverbs 31, 26, it says, She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Seventh characteristic, verse 5 at the end, subject to their own husbands. While the wife has the responsibility of being busy at home, the husband has the responsibility of leading the home, and wives are to be submissive to him. Now, ideally, as Ephesians 5 makes clear, that submission is to be to a husband who is laying down his life for his wife. And if that is is true, and if you have learned, as it says in verse 4, to love him, then you won't have a problem with submission. You say, well, that's a lot to ask. We have to... Love our husbands, love our children, work at home, be subject to our husbands, 
And on top of that, we have to be kind. How can we be expected to do all that? Well, look at the end of verse 5. In order that the Word of God may not be dishonored. Why does God want this from you? So that the Word of God will not be dishonored. That word dishonored is the Greek word blasphemo. Blasphemed. Unbelievers judge the genuineness of our faith more by our family than our theology. Your unbelieving friends are probably not interested in your theological position on transubstantiation. But they do care about how you carry out your relationships in life. And where there's no love and no kindness and no order in your home, they don't want to hear how God can change them too. Then he moves to the young men in verses 6 to 8. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Now this is the only exhortation he gives to young men because this sums up their problem. They need to be sensible. Young men are often impulsive, passionate, ambitious, volatile. They need to have the right priority. They need to be serious about spiritual things. They need to be concerned about what really matters. And then verse 7, In all things show yourself to be an example. Titus himself was a young man, and so Paul says, I don't want you simply to exhort the young men. I want you to be an example to them. I don't want you just to tell them. I want you to show them. Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 3, they say things and do not do them. Well, that's hypocrisy. And that's the quickest way to undermine the message. And so Paul says to Titus, I want you to tell them and I want you to show them. And he points out four ways. The first is in verse 7. He says, I want you to be an example of good deeds. In contrast to the false teachers who in chapter 1 and verse 16 profess to know God, but by their deeds deny Him, Titus is to show the reality of his profession by his actions. Second way he's to show them is in verse 7, by being pure in doctrine. That means he was not to compromise the truth. He was never to tickle people's ears. He was to proclaim pure, sound, healthy doctrine even when it didn't taste very good. And then thirdly, he was to be dignified. Like the older men, he was to be honorable and respectable. He was to be someone that others looked up to. You say, well, how can a young man be someone that people look up to? Well, Paul answers that in an address to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. He says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And then the fourth area he was to be an example in is in verse 8, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Titus's day-to-day conversation was to be sound, healthy, and edifying. 
What he said on Monday was to be just as healthy as what he said on Sunday so that no one could point the finger and say that he was inconsistent. And then verse 8 continues by saying, in order that the opponent may be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. There is no argument as effective as a holy life. And when anyone brings an accusation against a person who is doing in their life what they say with their lips, it only brings shame upon them. Which brings us to the fifth category, and that's the bond slaves in verses 9 and 10. Bond slaves were common in the Roman Empire. In fact, at one time, as many as a third of the people were slaves. Today we don't have slavery, and so this exhortation really applies to those who are employees. And for most Christians today, the most fertile field for evangelism is the place where they work. That is your mission field. In that setting, unbelievers have the opportunity to observe you in day-to-day situations. And they get to see whether you are patient or impatient, kind or uncaring, honest or dishonest, clean or foul-mouthed. They get to see in that setting whether you are living up to the faith that you profess. You see, inviting people to church has its place in witnessing. But it is of no use, in fact, it is counterproductive if your honesty and reliability are questioned on your job. And so Paul here picks out five character qualities that ought to distinguish every bond slave or employee. Number one, verse nine, to be subject to their own masters in everything. Your responsibility as a Christian to your boss is to obey. You say, well, where do you draw the line? There is no no line. You are to obey in everything. The only exception would be if he asks you to do something that is morally wrong. Second, verse 9, you're to be well-pleasing. Our work should be acceptable and pleasing to our boss. We don't just do enough to get by. We don't just do enough not to get fired. We are to do work that is excellent and pleasing. Third characteristic, not argumentative. And this has to do with the attitude in which we do our work. You are not to do your work resistantly. You are to do your work willingly. You are not to talk back, question, or dispute the order of the boss. And then fourth, not pilfering. Pilfering is stealing what belongs to the company. And that can be done a lot of ways today. It can be done by submitting inflated timesheets and expense reports, taking office supplies home, making unauthorized calls from the office phone, taking unauthorized trips on the company car. Not pilfering. And then the fifth thing he mentions is showing all good faith. And that means you are to prove yourself faithful. The boss should consider you trustworthy, reliable, and utterly dependable. You say, well, why is this so important? Look at verse 10. But showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior 
in every respect. The word adorn is the Greek word cosmeo, from which we get cosmetics. And what do cosmetics do for a lady? They make her look more attractive. What is it that makes the church attractive and influential in the world? Well, it's not strategies and it's not programs. It is the character and virtue of the people. There is great power in a committed life. In verse 5, we're told that it keeps the word from being dishonored. In verse 8, we're told that it puts opponents to shame. And in verse 10, we're told that it makes the message of God more attractive to a lost world. May God help each of us to be people of character. People whose lives line up with what their lips profess. I just want to leave you with these words from St. Francis of Assisi. He said, Go and preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage that lets us see the qualities that you want to see in your people. And Father, as we look in the mirror of the Word today, we see in our own lives some areas that we need to have Your Holy Spirit work on. Some areas that we need to see developed in our lives if we're going to become the people You want us to be. And Father, we pray that we might go from here as people who not only speak Your truth, but live Your truth so that we might truly adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name.